Welcome to our continuing 2020 educational webinar series. I am Catherine Short, Partnership Marketing Manager for First Healthcare Compliance. At First Healthcare Compliance, we help you with a comprehensive compliance management solution tailored to your business. A hospital, hospital network, healthcare practice of any size, billing company, or skilled nursing facility, and we help you manage every aspect of a compliance program, and our training library provides hundreds of modules that are easy to assign and track. As part of our complimentary educational webinar series, we bring you experts from around the country to discuss relevant topics in the healthcare industry. We are so pleased to have Melody W. Malik, MSHS, and she is the president of Revenue Cycle Coding Strategies, LLC. She is a frequent speaker and author for nationally recognized professional organizations and publications. Melody's areas of expertise include coding and compliance, management engineering and operations improvement, and she is nationally recognized for her extensive compliance expertise. Melody often speaks at national conferences on many topics, including interventional and diagnostic radiology coding, internal audit program development, coding compliance, and other healthcare compliance issues. Recent, recent speaking engagements include the Association of Community Cancer Centers, AHRA, the Association for Imaging Management, Radiology Business Management Association, Healthcare Billing Management Association, and Melody is a frequent author for national publications and writes for the bi-monthly coding column for AHRA and the HBMA Billing. Her work has also appeared in RT Image, Imaging Economics, Radiology Today, and Radiology Business Journal. Melody co-authored Revenue Cycle Coding Strategies Coding Guide for Diagnostic Radiology and Interventional Radiology. Prior to a current position, Melody held the position of Vice President for Billing Compliance for the largest national billing company, where she was responsible for the implementation, oversight, and maintenance of the billing compliance program. Melody holds a Master of Science in Health Systems degree and a Bachelor of Industrial Engineering degree, both from Georgia Tech in Atlanta, Georgia. She also holds the Professional Certification for Certified Radiology Administrator, Certified Professional Coder, Certified Professional Coder Hospital, and Radiology Certified Coder. Melody has achieved fellow status with the AHRA, is a recent recipient of the prestigious AHRA Gold Award for her organizational and industry contributions. A copy of the slides is available for download on the control panel. Feel free to submit questions into the question box on your control panel during the presentation. We will address questions at the conclusion of the presentation. Your PACOM and PMI CEU certificates will be emailed to you following the broadcast. Your PACOM certificate will come directly from PACOM and your PMI certificate will come from our email. There is no need to request either one. Additional CEU opportunities will be available to BC Advantage members following the live broadcast. See their website for details. A download of the handout is available on the side or upper panel of your screen. So Melody, a very warm welcome. Thank you so much for being here today. We're so happy to have you. Thanks, Catherine. I always appreciate the opportunity. 
Well, today we're going to be talking about appropriate use criteria, sometimes referred to as clinical decision support, and talk about what do we need to be doing today from a testing standpoint, and also implementation and what are some of the next steps. You know, one of the challenges with implementing appropriate use criteria is there's not one right way to do it. It's really dependent upon your systems, depends on what role that you're playing in. Some of you may be coming from an imaging perspective where you're gonna be actually doing the exams, you're submitting the claim forms for it, some of you are coming from a perspective that your providers are ordering the exams, and some are a combination. If you're in a practice that actually um, owns an MRI machine, for example, or a CT or a PET scanner, your physicians may be ordering and you may be billing for those services. So depending on what your organizational structure is, that's going to really drive how you're actually going to go through the implementation process. So our layering outcomes for today is, is first to identify what are your areas of concern? How far along are you in the implementation process? And what are the things that you still need to do? What are the things that we know the answers to versus what are we still waiting to hear from CMS on? We need to figure out how do we facilitate discussions with our stakeholders to make sure that everybody's perspective is heard and addressed, which is always important um, with any project. So as we're thinking through the details of implementation, I want you to think about who it impacts, how it impacts, and how can we make that as easy as possible. What I mean by that is, you know, this is a, a particular um, new initiative that isn't necessarily warmly embraced by everyone for a variety of reasons. And so we want to make things as easy as possible for our providers. So if they're the ones ordering the exams, how can we build it into our electronic health records to make it easier? If it's for the radiologist, how can we ensure that the information is getting over to their billing company as easy as possible? And then, you know, what are the things that you need to do, again, to make sure that you do have a successful implementation? Because there's a lot of revenue at stake here, and there's a lot of implications um, associated with this, and we want to make sure that we're doing things correctly. So we're going to start just real briefly with a background of appropriate use criteria. How did we get to where we are today? Um, what's the regulations for it? And then what do we know to be fact and how this is going to impact us? And what are the things that, again, that, we, that we're not aware of? And then talk about some of those next steps. And then as Catherine said, we'll open it up to Q&A at the end of the session as well. So we first look at where did this even come from? Well, it was introduced in what's called PAMA, right? We always have a lot of abbreviations in healthcare. This is the Protecting Access to Medicare Act. So this actually goes back to 2014, and it was implemented by Congress. And that's important to know because sometimes people view this as a CMS initiative, a Medicare initiative, and it's really not. CMS is responsible for the implementation of it, but they didn't actually create it. Um, that's important because when CMS is implementing it, this drives how it gets implemented. They can't just change the rules along the way because this is a con congressional mandate in essence and was passed into law uh, for that. So they're responsible for the implementation of it. And really where it came from, this goes even back to the Affordable Care Act and discussion around pre-authorization or pre-certification for these higher imaging modalities. And, and initially there was discussion in there about having a requirement that for all Medicare exams that there would be a, a pre-authorization process similar to what we see with our private payers. Well, that was determined to not be included in the Affordable Care Act piece of it for a lot of reasons, one of which primarily was because CMS said, boy, that's gonna be a lot of work. We don't really have the staff for it. That's gonna be a lot of costs. We need to find an alternative uh, method to do that. 
And so the American College of Radiology and working, um, you know, with, again, a congressional mandate passed along with it, said, well, let's look at what are the imaging studies that there's the most concern about them being over-ordered or not being ordered appropriately. And so they settled on the CT, the MR, nuclear medicine, which includes PET scans as well. This is important because it means that it does not apply to ultrasound, breast imaging, plain film. So anything not on this list, it does not apply to. So when we look at setting it up, you know, we only want to have to put it in place for the things um, that it's most appropriate for that. So this is where it came from. And as we go to next steps. So the first thing to look at was when they said, okay, well, how are we going to define what criteria gets used, right? So appropriate use criteria is the clinical information that an ordering provider is going to consult in a system in order to determine if the right exam was ordered. So when they were choosing the, the entities that could quote, define appropriate use criteria, they started and said, well, for us to consider an organization, they have to at least address these eight priority clinical areas. Doesn't mean they don't have more than that, and, and pretty much all of them do, but just to get on, just to go through the evaluation process with CMS, the organizations had to start with these eight priority clinical areas. And these are areas in particular that Medicare has seen a lot, obviously a lot of higher imaging uh, for that, and there's concern about are ordering providers selecting the right exam. So you can see you've got your headache and your low back pain and lung cancer and things like that as well. You know, some people have talked about, are they gonna add to the list? That's not really the focus at this point. This really came into play when they first identified what criteria could be used. Now we're talking about several years back. Might they add to it? They might, but honestly, again, that's not really the focus um, at this point with it. So if you look at the list, and this is still, even though the date of, on the slide, as you'll see, is June 2019, it hasn't been updated um, since that time. But I always recommend that you look on CMS's website, and there's the link for you so you can see the most, the, the most up-to-date list for it. So again, PLE is the provider-led entities. It is a provider-led entity that, that can create appropriate use criteria. So we're starting at the basics to say, what is the information they're either looking at? So if you look at it here, you can see it's a combination of professional societies, such as the American College of Cardiology, the American College of Radiology, um, with that. And then you also see other entities like John Hopkins or MassGen, um, Sloan Kettering. Again, the list goes on, but these are entities that are provider-led, which means that a private company can't go just create criteria, and for CMS to use it, it has to be provider-led. If the, anything that these organizations have provided as appropriate use criteria, they're now on the list with CMS. They don't have to go back and get uh, re-approved at any point um, with that, and so these are entities that publish appropriate use criteria. As we start talking about implementation and, and mechanisms, how they access the information, this is important to know because you may find that, that a lot of the mechanisms will use multiple um, appropriate use criteria. Because you can imagine when you think about your providers and their expertise or their specialty, you know, uh, someone that's an oncologist is gonna want to consult um, information that's oncology specific, such as the National Comprehensive Cancer Network or Sloan Kettering or MD Anderson, I mean, the list goes on. But you could also see if somebody's a cardiologist, they're gonna wanna make sure that the American College of Cardiology um, information is in there. Even though a lot of these cover a lot of specialties, there are some preferences by the providers based on their specialty, 
for that information. This list can grow again, but it hasn't been updated or there hasn't been any new entities added uh, since June of 2019 at this point. So the process is that the ordering provider must access appropriate use criteria through a clinical decision support mechanism. So a CDSM, that is an official term that Medicare uses, so another abbreviation, or CDSM, with that. So when they go to order an exam for a patient, they're going to consult this appropriate use criteria either through software that's been integrated into their electronic medical record. So even if they're on a physician EMR, it might be in their system. It could be if they're in a shared uh, medical record with a health system, maybe they're on Epic or Cerner or any other system, it might be they access it that way. There is a requirement that CMS put into place to say that there has to be a free web-based option. So if they don't have it integrated, they can technically go to a website and get that information as well. So what they do is they go through this and they put in the patient signs or symptoms why they're ordering the exam, and then that mechanism is going to give them, in essence, a score, and it's going to tell them that, yes, this is, you know, the CT is the preferred study based on this patient's signs and symptoms, or they might say, actually, CT is not the preferred study. It would be better to be an ultrasound, or it should be an MR, or, again, it, it's advising that ordering provider which is the appropriate um, study to perform for that particular patient. And again, it's not, it's not just recommending a CT, an MR, or a nuclear medicine study. It might recommend a lower modality um, for that. So again, back to my initial comment of this is not necessarily a, a program that everybody is fully, fully happy with. You can imagine a specialist being told they have to kind of go through this process. If I'm a neurosurgeon and I have to go through this to order an MRI of the brain, you can imagine why they consider this to be a little bit frustrating as we go through that. So keep that in mind as you're working with your providers, given their roles or given their specialty levels, why there's some resistance uh, related to that. And so appropriate use criteria in itself is, is a very positive thing. It really is designed to minimize inappropriate imaging for the patient. But since it's applied across the board to all specialties and all areas, again, you can understand why there's a little bit of frustration in some cases related to that. Now, when you look at the, the information, uh, and I've gone ahead and listed the G codes here for you. So let me just take a step back for a second and say, you know, why is it important that we know the mechanism and, and the piece of it? I'm going to flip back a slide because one of the things that I want to also share is kind of what was the original intention of the program and what's almost, it's that short-term versus long-term. So when this was originally set up, the intention was that the ordering provider would consult the mechanism and the mechanism in essence would create a smart number. And, and within that smart number, which has yet to be defined, it would say, okay, this is Dr. Smith and Dr. Smith is ordering a CT of the abdomen for this particular patient, and here's the score. So it's, it's the right exam. And all that data would be in there, and CMS would get that data from the mechanism itself. And then they would be able to look at that ordering practices of that provider, and all, again, all of it would be contained within the mechanism. Well, as time has gone on and we're moving towards implementation, CMS, you know, basically said, well, we're, we're not in a position to be able to take that data, do something with that data. So we're going to have to put in a different process 
to get the information, we're going to have to do it at the claim level. So when you hear people talk about a smart number or you hear them talking about, well, there's information that the mechanism creates, that's true. There is that. But right now, none of that comes into play when we talk about the implementation process. It will in the future, hopefully sooner rather than later. But in the short term, anybody that's billing for the imaging services is now in a position where we have to make sure that the information's on the claim because that's how the data is gonna to get to Medicare. So what they've done is they've created G codes to identify the mechanisms themselves that we're actually gonna to have to put on the claim form for both the imaging provider, again, that's not just limited to imaging centers and hospitals, if you're representing a specialist that owns an MRI machine like an orthopedist, you're gonna to have to do this as well. So you've got your G codes to communicate what the mechanism is, and then I'll talk about the modifiers in just a minute. Now you'll notice the G1011, there's a bunch of them that are under there. Actually, the definition of the G1011 is, is other mechanism uh, for that. So there's a bunch of them that kind of get grouped into it um, with it. But you can see there's a lot of different mechanisms that are out there and you can go look on CMS's website again. There's a whole section of that website dedicated specifically to appropriate use criteria and they list the mechanisms um, there. And so again, there's, there's quite a few of them that people are using. So we go back to, okay, what's the requirement? Again, the requirement is they have to consult it. I talked about the score and I mentioned it's gonna give feedback, but right now out of the gate, it doesn't matter. The feedback, we, we would hope that that ordering provider would use that information to guide the decision-making process, but out of the gate, that's not gonna be the driver. The only requirement, in essence, they're checking a box that they have to consult the AUC. Radiologists are not exempt. What that means is if you've got an interventional radiologist, let's say that they follow, they've taken care of a stroke patient, they want to order a, you know, a, a CT of the brain, for example, as a follow-up, they have to go through this process too. They can't just say, well, I'm a radiologist, I know what needs to be ordered for this patient. They have to work through this particular process as well. There are some exceptions, and these are important because as we think about our process flows, the exceptions are, are we're building different workflows. So it technically does not apply to inpatients. So you do not have to go through this consultation process for inpatients. Now that said, I will say that there are many organizations who have implemented it for inpatients because one, they wanna make sure there's appropriate um, you know, exams being ordered for inpatients. And then you also have a level of cost containment associated with that as well, because we know for Medicare, we have our DRGs, where we get that flat rate amount of payment, and we wanna make sure that if we're really doing CTs and MRs and nuclear medicine studies, et cetera, on inpatients, that it really is the most appropriate um, imaging for it. It does not apply to certain emergency studies, and this is really important. This is where it gets a little bit challenging because it's not a, a blanket statement that says it doesn't apply to the ED, because it does. It does apply in the emergency room, but it does not apply for anything that technically is defined as an emergency. They fall back, they being CMS, fall back on what's called the EMTALA guidelines, the E-M-T-A-L-A, um, and that goes back to a law that was passed, I believe, in like the late 80s. Uh, for that, that said, if a patient comes into your organization through the emergency room and it's an emergent situation, you cannot turn them away. So it's defining 
what is considered to be an emergency. Um, you may hear some physicians say that everything that comes into the ED is an emergency. We know that's not true, but keep in mind, we're talking about CT, MR, nuclear medicine and PET. Well, you don't really see a lot of nuclear medicine and PET coming out of the ED. It could happen, but not often. We don't see MR used as much um, as we used to. It's really gonna be CT. So as you start really honing into those ordering practices, it's best to look at it as, okay, what are we really talking about? How often does this occur uh, related to that? And then the other exception is our ordering physicians who qualify for hardship. Um, the, the guidelines for that is very similar to what we saw with the implementation of electronic health records, where certain physicians were exempted for that. And I'll show you more information and give you some more details around that in just a minute, along with the modifiers that go along with it. There are not any hardships for furnishing professionals, meaning for imaging centers, hospitals, those kind of things. The one exception to that is our critical access hospitals. So critical access hospitals are exempt. They're exempt for both the technical side, so the, the actual imaging itself, as well as the radiologist doing the interpretation uh, for that. That's important to note because that's an area that we'll talk about uh, in just a few minutes about we really don't have a way uh, to report that with it. So again, back to originally, it was all gonna be inside this mechanism, all that data would go to CMS, that was great. But again, what happened was they didn't really have the technology to go along with that. So instead, they've put the providers in the middle of it. And what they said is, okay, providers, imaging providers, radiologists, you have to, you know, you're gonna have to tell us this information. You're gonna have to tell us that the ordering provider actually did the consultation. So you've got somebody as a middleman. So the ordering providers actually have to tell the imaging center or the hospital, hey, I consulted this particular mechanism and here's the result of that consultation. So it is facility side and the radiologist side. If you're a freestanding center, then that's one and the same. But for most organizations, there's a separation between the technical component and the professional component. So it is on the ordering provider to tell the imaging center that they did this consultation. Now, why are they doing all this? Well, eventually, it is CMS's goal that the outliers are gonna be identified. What do we mean by outliers? They wanna look at the top 5% of all ordering providers, not within a specialty, but just across the board, top 5% of ordering providers who are, who are incorrectly ordering exams um, with that. And then what they're gonna do is eventually, they're gonna put that top 5% of those providers on 100% prior authorization review with Medicare for any advanced imaging study that they do. So they're collecting this data to determine who their outliers are of ordering studies with that. And so some initial studies that we've seen with organizations that have implemented this where they have found the greatest opportunity for education has really been with a lot of their non-physician practitioners. Um, that's not a blanket statement saying they're doing a bad job of ordering, that's not it at all, but more of a, as people are implementing it, where are they seeing opportunity for education with it? You know, you're, you're probably not gonna see it again. I'll use my neurosurgery you know, example. They know when to order a, a CT or an MR or an orthopedist knowing when to order an MR of the joint, those kind of things. So it's gonna be interesting what comes out with it, uh, but that's the overall goal. As far as the time frame for this, we don't know yet because similar to our quality programs, um, with that, there's usually a two-year delay, so they got to collect data. The other thing I would point out is within the MACRA, so within our quality program, the use 
of appropriate use criteria is actually a very highly weighted activity for the ordering provider. So they're coming at it from, from our standpoint of billing for it, but they're also coming at it from the quality side for ordering providers as well. So from a time frame standpoint, just to give a brief look in history. So again, the, the law originally passed 2014. So we're talking quite a few years ago at this point. It was originally supposed to be implemented in 2017, January 1. Well, the issue is with something that's this big, especially for a healthcare system, it, you know, something of this large of a magnitude is going to take anywhere from 18 to 24 months minimum. So there were delays that occurred, partly because a lot of feedback went to CMS and said, you know, it, we're, people aren't going to be ready for this. So in the final rules for three years, they pushed off the delay. The implementation date of 2020 has actually been in place since the final rule in 2019 uh, for that, meaning the, the final rule date is, is published the year before it, so it, it gets you ready for the upcoming year. And they left the implementation date of January 1. Technically, it is officially implemented, but we are in a testing period. So it's not mandatory um, this year, but it is mandatory effective January 1 of 2021, unless something changes, that is officially the mandatory uh, period. There was a voluntary reporting period that started in July of 2018 and went through the end of 2019. If anybody chose to participate, they put a QQ modifier on stuff and were communicating that they were doing it uh, for that. But right now, we again are officially in the um, implementation date and we're in our testing period. And, and the goal of this is to roll out everything, figure out what's working, what needs to be improved um, with that, because there's a lot of different aspects of it, right? So we've got stuff that's occurring at the acute care level within the, the ED. We have our employed physicians, we have non-employed physicians. There's a whole lot of different uh, pieces that go along with it. So we're in the middle of the testing year right now. And right now, Medicare pays for the study regardless of whether or not the AUC recommends the study. Now, this is a separate and distinct issue from medical necessity and LCDs and NCDs and things like that. You still have to meet medical necessity. They do not sync up these programs yet. Hopefully one day they will. So even though Medicare is saying they're gonna pay, regardless of whether or not AUC recommends it, that's again, a separate process than medical necessity. If it doesn't mean medical necessity, we know they're not gonna pay uh, for that. What they're saying is it's not because of AUC, that would not be the reason they wouldn't pay for the particular study. But starting January 1 of 2021, if the required information is not on the claim form, then we are gonna not see payment on both the furnishing professional being the facility, or the furnishing professional being the radiologist, or again, if you've got a specialty physician who does interpretation of studies as well, it, you will get denied. If the information is not on the claim form, January 1 of 2021, you will not receive payment. So think about that in terms of all of the reimbursement associated with your Medicare patients for these imaging studies. Again, either technical side or professional side for it. So how are we gonna report it? Well, I showed you the G-codes that were listed with the mechanisms. So the requirement is one, we have to put a G-code on there. So there's at least one G-code required on the claim per mechanism. And I say at least because there is the potential that a provider might be using a couple of mechanisms, probably not, but there are scenarios where you, if you're on the imaging side, you're doing a patient comes in, they're from out of town, we have two different orders for two different studies, ordered by two different physicians, and we do them on the same day, that definitely can happen. Um, that would be an example where that might happen. But the requirement is 
you know, one, one G code of the claim per mechanism. And I know it's got the date of 2020. Again, we technically are in implementation now, but we're testing. Then we have to use modifiers that get assigned at the CPT code level, indicating whether or not they adhere. Did it adhere? Did it not adhere? Or was it not applicable um, for that? So we've got a G code and we have modifiers. The modifiers go on the CPT code of the actual imaging exam, not on the G code. They go on the actual CPT code of the MRI, the CT, the nuclear medicine study, et cetera. So immediately you start to think, well, how are we gonna get this information. If I'm on the facility side, how am I going to get the modifiers from the ordering provider? I mean, if I have an integrated um, physician order entry system and, it, and it's all integrated in, life is good. I can get that through my system. But the reality is, uh, I've only heard of one organization to date that actually has everything integrated in. Places still deal with paper orders. You deal with providers coming outside the system. There's just a lot of things, and you got to think about all those different scenarios. And who's going to put that put that information in? Is it going to get put in during scheduling? Is it going to get put in during registration? Is it going to happen in the department? Is it going to be done by coding? Is it going to be done by billing? You can see there's a lot of options here that you're going to have to consider. And then the radiologists themselves, because the radiologists typically, unless it's a freestanding center. The radiologist in a hospital setting doesn't really have that interaction. They don't have access to the hospital information in, a, in an easy fashion. So how do we make sure that the information the hospital obtains gets passed appropriately over so that the radiologist billing can occur correctly and compliantly as well? So let's look at these modifiers. So these modifiers are really important because we want to make sure that we're applying them correctly. Again, if you're in the testing phase now, you're already trying these modifiers. If you're not, then this is what you're going to be looking to implement. And these modifiers will become mandatory again January 1. So the first one is the MA modifier. Uh, this is what we use with patients in the emergency room that have an emergency condition. So ordering professionals not required to consult a clinical decision support mechanism due to service being rendered to a patient with a suspected or confirmed medical condition. So they don't have to necessarily have the condition, it's suspected. If a patient comes in and they're suspected of having a stroke, obviously that would feed, meet the definition of a, a potential or a suspected medical emergency. There's a lot of things that come into the ED that definitely are gonna fall into this category. When we use the MA modifier on that CT scan, or on that MRI scan, that we're not gonna have a G-code on the claim because they didn't have to consult the criteria. So you've gotta look at how do you set your system up to make it as efficient as possible for your ER physicians to order studies without having to worry about this particular piece. So again, back to operationally, how are we gonna do it? The next three modifiers are the hardship modifiers. As we said, hardship is an exception as well. The first hardship says, um, the hardship exception of insufficient internet access. That definitely still happens um, in a situation where you've got somebody that's in a rural area, for example, they don't have access to the internet, there could be other reasons, things that happen. So if that happens, the ordering provider just has to attest to you that they have insufficient internet access. They don't have to tell you on every single order that comes over, but you would need to have proof that that provider has told you that they don't have sufficient internet access and that's fine. CMS has said they're gonna hold providers harmless, meaning if I'm an imaging center and Dr. Smith has told me that he has insufficient internet access and so everything that I bill associated with him has an MB modifier, 
that's sufficient as long as I can prove that they gave me that information in writing. The MC modifier says that there's problems with the electronic health record or uh, a vendor issue. So that's considered a hardship exception. And then MD would be significant, uh, extreme or uncontrollable circumstances. So we think about um, you know, situations where we have a hurricane or we have tornadoes that go through or other things like that that happen um, that and something has impacted it, that would be hardship. So for both the emergent and the hardship exceptions, you don't have a G code on the claim form with it. You're just putting a modifier with the CPT code because again, you're telling them why a consultation did not occur. The next three codes, the ME, MF, and MG are the ones we're gonna use that we are gonna put a G code with it because we're telling them the results of that actual consultation with that. So with the consultation, the first one, ME, says that it actually adhered. So when they get that positive green light, so to speak, uh, that it adheres, they're going to tell us, hey, I've ordered the CT of the brain, here's an ME modifier, and here's the mechanism that I used that gave me that result. MF says that the, the service does not adhere to that. Um, frankly, since it, we're self-reporting, I don't know how often that's going to happen, but we'll see what happens um, related to that. So that's our MF. And then MG says the order for the service doesn't have appropriate use criteria in the mechanism. So remember at the beginning when I talked about those eight priority areas, all of them have that in there, but there's the potential though that based on the criteria that's being consulted, that the particular scenario that the ordering provider put in wasn't represented in there. For example, you might have a patient that has lung cancer and they're concerned about brain mess. Well, when they put all the information in there, they may find that the criteria they're consulting doesn't come back and give them a scenario. Because again, all mechanisms or all criteria doesn't have every scenario. They tried, they consulted it, but it didn't give them the results. So they're getting credit for the fact that they tried. So if you do an ME, an MF, or an MG as modifiers on the CPT codes, you will have a corresponding G code that will go along that must be on the claim. The last modifier is probably the big one everybody's using this year for testing is MH. That one says it's unknown if the ordering provider consulted it. That's our testing modifier. It enables us to, to make sure things are working, that we're able to submit claims through and things like that, um, but we're saying we don't know if they did it. So the question comes up um, with that MH modifier is what's going to happen to that modifier come the true go live date? We would anticipate that this modifier will go away and no longer be valid um, after 2020, but we won't know that for sure until actually we implement in January 1 of next year. So this is one of those areas where we're gonna make sure that we're getting some good information um, with that. So that, port that MH modifier is something that we're definitely gonna be watching very, very carefully. So what do we know at this point? We know that right now we can start reporting those G codes on there and we can do the modifiers um, at the line item level, meaning on the individual CPT codes for designated exams. We know that multiple G codes can be on the same claim. Uh, for that, again, there's, there's some scenarios that could happen, but I would anticipate that the majority of the time it really is going to be just that one modifier that goes on there. Now here's a big issue that's come up, is who has to do the actual consultation, right, of it? And one of the things that CMS has been clear on is that facilities cannot do this for the referring physician or the ordering physician. That's very, very important. It defeats the whole purpose of the actual initiative for that. What CMS has clarified is that referring physicians can have their own clinical staff 
perform it at their direction. Several key things in here. One, it has to be clinical staff. It didn't just say their own staff. So there should not be a registration person or billing person doing this on behalf of the ordering provider. That's very, very important. And it has to be their own clinical staff. It's not directing other clinical staff, like you know somebody that's engaged by the hospital or something like that with it. So this is a very important piece. So can they have their nurses or their PAs or their MPs do it? Absolutely, based on CMS guidelines, they are allowed to do that for them. But again, that does not, it's clinical, it's not registration, it's not billing people, it's not their front office staff that are doing that. Um, so that's very important. This is already an issue because I've even heard of situations where facilities, meaning on the hospital side, have directed their staff that they need to do this for an ordering provider, and that is not compliant. So I do think we're going to see some additional information coming out from CMS on this because they want to make this really crystal clear that the responsibility for this is clinical and it does lie with the actual provider themselves. So there's been several things that CMS has put out to provide additional information because one of the things that has been relayed to CMS is that there's still a lot of unanswered questions, especially for the facility side, on the hospital side. So on January 9th of 2020, they issued a, a document, and the link there is for you, that gave guidance to the hospital side on information of, of how to submit on the UBO4, also called the CMS 1450 um, with that. And it gave 10 different scenarios of how to report the G codes and the modifiers for it. And it also answered the question of how do they report the ordering provider's NPI number on that actual claim form. So if you're on the facility side and you do any UBO4 billing, you definitely wanna make sure that you've reviewed that document in detail so that you can see all the scenarios that they've given for it. The other thing that's useful, even if you're on the physician side, and yes, that was given as guidance for the hospital side, they also put some clarifications in there about, about the modifiers and about the G-codes that it really applies to both sides as well. So I always recommend for something especially this big of an initiative, you read up as much as you can on everything and get all the information that you can. So it also covered, again, a lot of scenarios of what do you do if there's not a specific Hicks fix for a mechanism? We saw that, that G1011 on there, and then the multiple consultations of the same clinical decision support um, piece in there. So that information, I just I cut in there and provided one example. This is the level of detail they actually put into that transmittal um, for that. So they're showing you how the modifiers would be applied, and the fact in this particular scenario, this is an example of where we had a patient that had a, a study, they wound up having something out of the emergency room um, with it, and then separately they wound up having a study um, that was a non-emergent um, situation. There's a variety of different ways something like this could happen um, for that. So here's one where they've got an, an MRI where it's not for a medical condition, or excuse me, for an emergency condition, and the CT though was. So in that situation, the CT would be billed with an MA modifier, communicating that it was a suspected or actual emergency situation. And then for the, um, the actual MRI piece of it, it's an ME modifier. Uh, and that one, because we know the ME modifier is they're actually getting a result, then they would have the G code that would go along with it. So MA has no G code with it. The ME modifier is gonna require an associated G code related to that. And it also, for the hospital side, gave them information on what um, revenue codes that you use for that. And what they basically said is we use the 
same rev code for the G code that we do for the actual uh, study itself with that. So other additional questions that come up. Um, these are really important because you've got to think about the process aspects of this. Is, is CDS going to be required when Medicare is the secondary payer? The answer is yes. Medicare has stated that it is going to apply. They have not published this in, in writing as much as they are going to. Um, this comes from direct conversations with Medicare as well. This is very important because if that means that we have to put this information, so if somebody has a primary uh, commercial insurance and Medicare secondary, we're going to have to have that information on that primary claim because if we have a crossover claim, which is what happens behind the scenes. Well, what's going to happen if that primary payer all of a sudden gives us a denial and says we don't recognize this modifier? We know that could totally happen. So you've got to think about, you know, how do you make sure that, that we're also, even within our own systems, doing it so that uh, it's looking at the payer and say, oh, well, if it's not Medicare primary, I'm not going to make the ordering provider do it. Well, since it applies to Medicare secondary, that's why most organizations, you just do it for all of your patients. Um, with that, that way the insurance piece kind of works its way out from a billing standpoint. And then you figure out what's actually going to go out the door. The other one that's really important to be aware of that's going to create some potential challenges as it relates to the flow is observation patients. So does it apply to observation patients? The answer is yes, because observation patients are technically outpatients um, with that. So that's another one when you think about status, and we're seeing a lot of you know, different criteria of when is it outpatient or versus inpatient observation, even with private payers that might say, oh, well, this didn't meet our qualification for inpatient. You have to, you have to bill it as an outpatient um, for observation. So again, and if we had them as an inpatient and you didn't require the ordering provider to go through consultation, you potentially put some revenue at risk if you didn't do it for that particular scenario. So that's a really, these two, the secondary payer and the observation patient status are two big areas that are really important as you're looking at the implementation. What's gonna to happen to that modifier in 2021? Again, don't know yet. So that's something that we're definitely gonna be watching uh, to see what happens with that. The other one that we don't know is, I mentioned that critical access hospitals were exempt uh, for that. How do we, if you're on the radiologist side, how do we communicate to Medicare that they did the interpretation in a critical access hospital and therefore there's not going to be um, a, a G code with it, right? So we really almost need another modifier because our place of service codes, we don't have one that specifically says critical access hospital. So there's not really a way that they can see it. Yes, that may be on the claim form down at the very bottom in the middle where we list the facility, but if that's not something CMS quote reads, when they look at it, um, that would create a challenge. So this is something that still has to know. So anybody that deals with critical access hospitals, something to be aware of um, that we're gonna have to address for it. Um, one of the other questions that's been posed to CMS that they answered as well was, well, what happens if we get the patient back and it really is the incorrect exam. We don't image somebody just because somebody ordered it as part of the process and imaging is to make sure that it's the right exam. So we give feedback to the ordering provider and say, look, for what you're looking for, you know, it shouldn't just be an abdomen, it should be an abdomen pelvis. So it's different codes, for example. And they stated that they did not have to do, quote, a reconsultation at that point. So they do not have to go back into the mechanism at that point. Um, they would continue to be able to use the initial score, so to speak, or the initial feedback related to that. 
some of the other questions that we have, you know, how's the rendering provider going to determine when a claim denial results from a failure to consult the, the, the clinical decision support, the mechanism for, uh, distinct from something else? Or are they going to give us things on the EOB that actually tell us, hey, this is why it was denied? It was specifically around AUC, not another reason for it. Uh, then other things, too, is what about the requirement that it applies for things that are not covered by Medicare? For example, if we get an ABN, advanced beneficiary notice for an MRA that's not covered, do we still have an issue where we have to do the appropriate use consultation with that? Again, still waiting on some of the answers for that. Other things that we're seeing uh, related to that is even during the testing period, for those of you down in Florida, we've heard that there's been some denials from First Coast on our CT pelvis. So of all codes, 72192 through 72194 uh, related to First Coast uh, for that, this is something that, you know, they just didn't get it loaded in. They didn't have the actual codes in there like they needed to. And so it's good. This is exactly why you have a testing period so that you can identify what those issues are and, and how they need to be addressed um, from that standpoint. Other thing with that is you gotta think about, you know, what is the role of the radiologist in this? And hopefully the answer to that is not much, and I mean that in a very positive way because if the systems are flowing through, we don't, we, we don't really need to bother our radiologists with all this because we would capture all the data appropriately and it would flow through to the billing system uh, related to that. The other piece that I would throw in there is, is we really got to work hard to make sure this doesn't impact the patient. Um, that this is not something we want to put the patients in the middle of. If, if we set up good processes related to things, then we don't inconvenience the patient. We don't want a scenario where the ordering providers are saying, the radiologist is making me do this, or the ordering provider is making me do this. This is a CMS you know, implementation that was required by Congress. Yes, we have to do it, um, but it, again, we need to make it as smooth of a process with it. So what do we do now? Well, you need to look at you know how your charge flows are going to change. So you know, kind of putting the, the geeky hat on because I'm I'm a geek, so I like the geeky hat. Is to look and say, you know, have you processed flowed out? How does data flow through your system right now, and how's it going to change? How's it going to change for the ED? How's it going to change for our scheduled outpatients? What about again, if we've got employed physicians that utilize our system? If we have physicians that are non-employed that utilize our system, that don't utilize, I mean, there's all different process flows you have to think about, and, and who's going to be accountable for gathering that data, and at what point do they gather it in the process? How are the facilities going to get that information, and then how's it going to get passed? And the communication that goes on between the physician and the facility side is really, really important here to make sure everybody has what they need. Now, for some of you, if you are in an orthopedist office or you're in a cardiologist office, you know, and you, you don't have this. You've got a different scenario where you still need to think about your flow. How can I make it as easy as possible for my physician to order to consult this appropriate use criteria while they're ordering the exam? So let's say my cardiologist is ordering a nuclear medicine study. How do I make that as easy as possible? And then how do I ensure from a billing standpoint that that information goes appropriately on the bill? So again, your questions may be a little different based on your organization, but, but the concept of making sure that when we're billing, it's accurate and how I'm going to get that data is really important. And we've got to dig through that in the detail. If I'm on the hospital side with that, you know, ER patients are a big issue. How are we going to determine when it's not applicable from a process standpoint? There, again, there's not one right answer to this. Your EMR 
vendor is going to be able to provide you guidance on how other people are handling it or what they consider best practice, but even how you've implemented the system within your own organization is going to drive some of that. And what are the systems that interface and how is stuff going to flow through related to that? Because you've even got to think about those G codes. You're going to put them in the charge master, probably should, but again, how, we don't want to put the modifiers in the charge master, so how are we going to get that? And then what are we going to do if there's not compliance by the ordering providers? Are we all on the same page that if we do these studies and they were not compliant, then we've done them for free? And how much do you want to do for free? Remember, we're talking about non-emergent, um, you know, outpatient services, right? If they're inpatient, then it doesn't apply. So how much of this non-emergent imaging are we willing to do for free? And, and who's going to enforce that? And, are we, and how, do we, how do we balance that? Um, with our ordering providers, and that's why we want to come up with the smoothest pro uh, part as possible, um, because again, we don't want to make them jump through a bunch of hoops or they're going to give their business elsewhere. So you've got a lot of revenue at risk if we don't do this correctly. And we got to think about our manual orders, because again, manual orders throw a whole new wrench into things. Are they going to are they going to be good and write down the modifier on the order? Are they going to put the G code in the order? How are they going to do that? Um, so that's become a very very important piece as well when you think about that particular process. And then think about if you're in a position where, again, if you're on imaging and people are ordering exams from you, who's responsible for making sure that the ordering providers are actually doing things correctly? Um, so that's going to be a really important piece of who owns those discussions with the ordering providers with that. Um, and so you can see project plans are going to be really important, making sure there's accountability, who's responsible for what um, in that process. And so as you're listening to this, you know, some of you may be in a position where you think, you know, I don't really know what's going on uh, in my organization. I'm glad you're listening to this. This is exactly what it's designed for is to get you to ask questions. And I really do reinforce that, that old adage of there's no such thing as a stupid question. There's no one has all the answers for this. They really, really don't. Every organization is working through how to implement this, how to do it accurately, how to do it efficiently. And there's no one perfect way to do it. And there's no cookie cutter solution. It's driven by your, your system, your physician, what services you're providing. And so you've really got to come up with a custom solution for you where there might be some opportunity for leverage as if you are a specialty physician practice and you're just focused on, you know, what are the kind of services you do. But, but I would anticipate your physician's still going to order services from somebody else. And so you got to think about both sides of that when that definitely occurs. So you got to get your project plan in place and you got to make sure that you're continuing to make progress with it um, as we're going through with it. All right, we've covered a lot of information in a very short period of time and I know we probably have some questions. So Catherine, let's go ahead and open it up and happy to answer any questions. Okay, thank you so much. We do have a few questions. And um, the first one is, can you give me some examples of when the hardship modifiers would be appropriately utilized? Okay, so, you know, there's, there's some, like I, I mentioned the whole issue of insufficient internet access, if, if a provider truly is, let's say, in a rural area and they don't have it. Another interesting scenario that came up with a hospital recently that, that I, I frankly hadn't thought about out of the gate was, you know, sometimes we have downtime. We have scheduled downtime for systems. 
And so even though those may be at odd hours, let's say they're going to do scheduled downtime on a Saturday night from 2 a.m. to 7 a.m., well, there's still patients coming into the ED during that time period. So there may be a situation where it's a non-emergent um, ED patient and they're ordering a CT for them and they're not able to consult the appropriate criteria because they don't have access um, to that. So that would be an example that would, quote, fall under the hardship because they didn't have access um, to it, do it, excuse me, during those time periods. So I think you have to look at not only from the standpoint of typical scenarios you might see, um, but some of those kind of things. I, I think those are probably the two biggest ones that we're going to see. And then clearly the catastrophic situation where, um, you know, somebody doesn't have internet access because, again, they've they've had disruptions um, related to things uh, for that. So I, I think, you know, and I think we're going to probably see other ones. And I would just add that this is why learning from others and sharing information of, of best practices and the good, bad, and the ugly is so important because we can learn from other organizations organizations and how they implemented in the scenarios that they encountered as well. Okay, great. Um, Melody, I have a question. Um, do you have a slide that has your uh, information on it, your contact information I on sure it? I sure do. I have that as the last slide, and when everybody downloads the slide information, they'll have that there as well. Okay, great. Yeah, I was just going to remind people that they can not to forget to download the, uh, the slides also so that they have the... Uh, um, information as well. Good, great. Okay. Um, okay, so we have another question here. How will most organizations respond if the implementation, uh, if the implementation is delayed for six or 12 months or, or whatever? Um, how is that going to be? Um, uh, how are they going to respond? A good question. You know, there is there is some rumors out there right now that we may see things um, delayed because of COVID-19 or just delayed because there's other concerns or focus related to that. As of right now, as of, as of the you know the date of this audio web, we we have not seen a delay yet. However, we always want to be aware of it and check it in the in the rulemaking process for the Medicare Physician Fee Schedule proposed rule. CMS is going to provide additional information. They may put it there or they might put out uh, another delay with it. But if they do, and we'll say if, if they do delay by six months or even a year with that, um, organizations that I'm aware of are just gonna use that as additional time for testing. I think the only thing that it would really delay, I would argue, is your non-employed physicians, because if you're doing it within your acute care setting, you're doing it within your own organization, having as much time as possible to test through scenario is in everybody's best interest. It's not gonna go away. If anybody thinks for a minute, that, that Congress is going to pass, because it would take Congress, literally, pass a law to say they're not going to do it, that's not going to happen, because this is ultimately going to save the government money, um, as far as exams and things like that go. So it's going to happen. It's just a matter of when. So if you do get a gift of another six months, another 12 months, use it for testing, and then I would push off when you require your, your non-employed physicians to consult it, and I would push that closer to the actual implementation date, because that's your biggest hurdle to cross. Okay. Uh, we have a question concerning pri priority. So how are most organizations approaching implementation in terms of priority by area? Good question. So, you know, there is some variation by organizations, clearly. I mean, some places have said we're going to implement it on the inpatient side, even though it's not required because we think that's the biggest bang for the buck. But what I've seen most organizations doing is they're addressing it with the acute care setting first, meaning your EDE, your observation patients, 
uh, you know, anybody coming into the health system, you know, scheduled outpatient, those types of things. Then they, if they have employed providers, so they have practices that work for the health system or, you know, owned by the health system, they implement with those employed providers next. And then the last is the non-employed um, providers. Because again, you really don't have the influence for it. And once you require them to do that before you'll do the patients for them, that's that balancing act. Because if you do it too soon, you risk losing all that business because your ordering providers say, hey, I'm gonna go to the other hospital or I'm gonna go to the imaging center down the street because they're not making me do this because it's not required yet. Um, so that, that's the balancing with it. So I would say acute care, employed providers, and then non-employed providers. Okay, all right. And then a question concerning uh, CMS and information. What is the biggest piece of information we are waiting to hear on uh, from CMS? Yeah, there are several things that I think the big thing that everybody's focused on is whether or not they're going to delay it. So I think everybody first and foremost wants to hear, is it really going to still be January? And then after that, I still think we're waiting to hear uh, related to how are we going to report for our radiologists for critical access hospital um, piece for that. And then the other, I would say, is what's going to happen to that MH modifier, which I really do think is going to go away. But again, we need to wait and hear it directly from CMS. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much. Do you have any other words of advice or anything else that you would like to leave with us today? I think the big thing is, you know, ask questions. Uh, you know, again, if, if you are responsible for doing it, reach out, get help. Um, you know, there's listservs, there's other organizations and things to do because you can't, no one's going to be an expert, right? This is the first time we really had to implement something like this. Uh, and if and if you're not responsible for the plan and somebody else is, don't feel bad about asking questions. I mean, again, everybody's working their way through this and figuring out the best way to implement it for an organization. And and don't make, don't let anybody make you feel bad about that. I mean, you need to get the questions you have answered. Um, I think a lot of it in implementing this, it's not so much does anybody have all the answers, but are we all asking the right questions? And and we do have to continue to ask the questions to make sure that. Um, things are being addressed and don't assume somebody else is doing it because again, this is new and there's always that possibility that nobody thought about that. So ask lots of questions because we want to make sure we have a smooth implementation. Okay, great. Wonderful advice. Um, thank you again so much for coming on today. We surely appreciate it. It's my pleasure and really always appreciate the opportunity. Okay, well, thank you. Attendees, thank you also. Uh, please use the contact information uh, that you have, that you'll have on your uh, download and on the screen. Please uh, send us any questions also and we can forward them on to Melody. Please remember your PACOM and PMI CEU certificate will be emailed to you from within two days following the broadcast. There's no need to request it separately you'll get it automatically. You can register for future webinars or request a demo of our compliance solution on our website at firsthcc.com or call us at 888-543-4778. And thank you for joining us.